Rusty Quill presents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey guys, did you know that Patreon is a song that your heart plays when you love a podcast? At patreon.com slash woe underscore begone, you can get instrumentals, early access to episodes, director's commentaries, Q&As, cat clips, and more. Again, that's at patreon.com slash woe underscore begone. A very special thanks to my 10 newest patrons. L. Adams, Brandon Steins, Lilith B., John Williams, Terry Nelson, Michael Arms, Manuel Santos, Anne, Jenny Rose, Zombie Adams, and Kelly for supporting the show. Enjoy. Warning. This episode contains a description of violence, as well as a description of scientific experimentation on animals. Listener discretion is advised. I was wrong to hide from everyone. When I started, Wobegon was a secret. It had to be. I was told that I was on top of a leaderboard, and I didn't want any extra competition. It's always been a secret game with a secret rule set. I cut off my hands for perceived bonus points, which would have been for nothing if I had made the game harder for myself by recruiting other players. The one person in my life who knew about it was my fiercest rival. She would have to kill me in order to progress. Even after I completed the fourth challenge, everything still needed to remain a secret. By then, I was infiltrating a top-secret government facility on behalf of a shadowy group of game runners, and I was my rival's fourth challenge. I was something to be completed. My life was tied to my secrecy. I couldn't be found out. If Over didn't kill me, then Wobegon would. I maintained this secrecy even after making close friends in Old Brush Valley, but it was for a different reason. By then, I had suffered too much. I knew what would happen to my loved ones if they decided to involve themselves in Wobegon. I had killed Matt. I had died an indeterminate amount of times. I considered Wobegon a type of info hazard. Just knowing about it was tantamount to danger. Speaking its name out loud, especially to someone who had never heard of it before, could yield fatal consequences from any point in time to any other point in time. That was the worst part. 
the consequences wouldn't wait for the bad decisions to be made. It was too late for me, but I decided that I would languish so that others would not. That's what I truly believed at the time. That's what I told myself. You're protecting them. As it turns out, people didn't want me to languish, they wanted to help. Knowledge of the certain danger involved did not abate their willingness to help me. Wobegon, as well as every other facet of this infinitely expanding world of travel through time and space, was dark and intriguing. They wanted to help me, and they wanted in. It should come as no surprise that I've collected acquaintances with this set of interests. And they were smarter than me, more driven, some of them were. It took multiple forced hands to get me to open up. Mystery Hunter playing Wobegon, Marissa showing up to my apartment, the destruction of 357A, the double bluff from the Flinchites that put Edgar in danger, the message from the future Anne preparing us for the showdown inside of Tier 2. At some point it became too much to keep a lid on, and I didn't want to keep a lid on it. I opened the floodgates. The cat was out of the bag. There are too many figures of speech to count that describe this phenomenon, one of losing control. It became too much to contain. Edgar, Anne, Hunter, Marissa, and I all ended up inside of Tier 2 together. And we left together. Together, we were instantly light years ahead of anything that I had accomplished on my own, far beyond anything that I had obtained or learned at Over, or from taking demands from Wobegon or the Flinchites. We sat up a makeshift base out of the Airbnb that Anne had rented in order to prepare for the invasion of Tier 2, then eventually moved into a house in the middle of nowhere, again rented by Anne in order to have a base of operations. We called it The Base, because nobody liked my cool name for it, and because we all knew what it meant. Anne lived there, and the rest of us were there as often as we could be, none of us willing to fully part with Over. Edgar and I spent the most time there, with Hunter and Marissa providing ground support when they could. Hunter had important connections inside of Over, and Marissa had important connections outside of Over. Chance and Shadow were still being courted, but they kept their distance. They preferred to keep their heads down. Anne and Edgar knew things that I didn't. Anne had worked at a separate facility, her version of Over. Edgar lived an entire year from the moment that he disappeared inside of Tier 2, only to reappear minutes later to save the day. He lived a whole year full of the things that I tried to protect him from. The technology and bloodshed, the conspiracy and ulterior motives, and it had transpired for him without me. I didn't have to be the one to involve him. A consequence before an action. The opening of a can of worms. That's another figure of speech. Anne and Edgar weren't hiding in the same way that I had been, but they weren't saying everything. They knew that they couldn't say everything, and I tried to be understanding. The future iteration of Anne that we heard on the recording kept stressing that once information is sent back in time, it will propagate backward through time as far as it can. This idea, this word, propagation, infiltrated our lexicon. Information wants to be free, and this technology was a new medium through which information could attempt to move freely. This understanding about the flow of information dictated how the base operated. Future plans to use time travel to commit murder are exactly the type of information that one does not want to move freely, so our plans were meted out at a snail's pace and begrudgingly on a need-to-know basis. I yearned to console Edgar, to hear what happened to him in his lost year, but this time I was the one who was being shut out. It would have to come out in bits and pieces until it was all out, or until the lost year happened in its rightful time. I had to learn to trust Edgar and Anne, as they had learned to trust me. 
things were so exciting in the beginning that it was easy to forget about the information disparity between us. In addition to what they already knew, we were always learning. We had the devices that we picked up off of the Arbiters that had died in Tier 2, off of the corpse of a young Ty Betteridge and his colleague. We called these devices calculators, because they seemed to execute some kind of code that would calculate how to place an object in a certain time at a certain place, and the buttons appeared to be taken from a Texas Instruments graphing calculator. It was like the security.exe program, but not bound to a computer in an off-limits location, or tied to a source like the one that had been stolen from 357A. The code was mysterious in its power. We didn't understand how any of it worked, so we sat up a battery of intricate tests to see what variables corresponded to what outputs. When we discovered them, the calculators were set up in a configuration wherein the selected object would be moved a minuscule amount of time on the order of fractions of a second into the past and then to whatever coordinates were chosen. This would essentially make a perfect double of the object in question. The utility of this function is obvious, especially as it pertains to human beings with a major setback being that Mike Walters number 2643 would require a place to eat and sleep just as much as his 2,642 counterparts would. You couldn't just take him out back and put him down when you're done with him. The meeting where I suggested doing as much got surprisingly heated. Fortunately, digging through the code had revealed more than we had expected. Anne found some settings that suggested that excess travelers, as we had been calling them, could be consolidated. I'm putting air quotes around all of that. We could combine iterations of time travelers back into one person, presumably in a way that didn't kill anyone. I was skeptical. I couldn't imagine a scientific mechanism through which that was possible. Once it happened, you de facto had two different people with two different minds. I knew firsthand how different, how disagreeable and incoherent these minds could be. One of mine was a fucking cowboy. But I didn't have a mechanism for time travel either, unless one is to believe in Eliza Schultz and the retrocausal pocket, if any of that was based in fact, or the works of Charles Thibodeau if he really existed and really pioneered this field of science. Regardless, this technology could have come from decades or even centuries into the future. It was not contingent on my understanding of it. Consolidation also gave some insight into why some things seemed to contradict each other. How sometimes Wobegon had done strange things to my mind, or how some people who died in the past were still alive in the present. On the whole, this wasn't time travel technology. It was a set of technologies packaged together as a toolkit for a more general goal. To surveil and affect any event at any place at any time. Consolidation didn't solve every paradox, but it did hint that some paradoxes could be solved. The first consolidation experiments were on inanimate objects, but they didn't yield convincing results. Two objects became one object, but it wasn't clear in exactly what way that was. You can create one piece of paper out of two by destroying one of the pieces of paper. We needed more resilient findings, and that's where the hamsters came in. Hamster 1, aka Chubbums the Wonder Girl, we believe to have successfully duplicated, but then transported into the vacuum of space immediately after. This was an anticipated issue. The Earth is whizzing through space at 67,000 miles per hour in its orbit around the Sun, so if you are going to move an object through space independent of the Earth, you have to know where in the universe the Earth is relative to where it was when you started, because the place that it was a second ago is now bare outer space, full of nothing and rocks. And now Chubbums the Wonder Girl. Hamster 2 was a more moderate failure. 
This time, the duplication was easily achieved. It had been practiced and fine-tuned on inanimate objects. Hamster 2 became Hamsters 2 and 3 with minimal issue. The failure occurred during the consolidation attempt. After several tries, the results were two exhausted hamsters weary from the time travel effects and joined at the hip. They were only attached by skin with no other major overlap. They were still separate beings with entirely separate organs, with separate brains that had experienced different things. Anne, ever the least squeamish and most medically proficient, very carefully cut through the conjoined flesh and stitched them up. After this, we decided not to put them through any more experimentation and gifted them their lives in peace at the base, Hamsters 2 and 3. Hamster 4, or the Princess Daffodil experiment, was by all means a success. We taught one Princess Daffodil how to solve a maze, and we taught another Princess Daffodil how to solve a different maze. The combination was seemingly a success. There was now one Princess Daffodil where two had been before. When shown the mazes, she was able to navigate both with ease. We took this as a sign of the hamster maintaining memories from both iterations. I couldn't shake myself of the worry that something simpler was the culprit, that maybe one of them had been destroyed, and that the other's ingenuity was actually fueled by the desire for a milk-and-honey hamster treat. Princess Daffodil loves those treats more than I've loved anything in my entire life. Sorry, Edgar. Subsequent experiments on the princess showed equally promising results. She seemed content, showing only mild discomfort during the time travel, just as you or I might. She was consolidated with other iterations of herself time and time again, seemingly with a 100% success rate. I was anxious about the first human attempt, myself being the first guinea pig, of course, but I wasn't anxious for the right reasons. The experiment was built as part of a larger operation. I was to stay at the base, and another Mike was to transport into a surveillance van to track down a lead on a device that Edgar knew about from his lost year. The experiments went according to plan, and the mission was nearly complete when we got spotted and the other Mike Walters was shot dead, calculator in hand. I detonated the van in order to keep the calculator from falling into the wrong hands, leaving us with only one calculator and only one Mike Walters. The goals of the mission shifted. Instead of consolidating two mics and observing the results, we needed to figure out how to use the technology to clean up an enormous mess. To make matters worse, there were lights to keep on, mouths to feed, milk and honey hamster drops to buy, operations to fund, a base to operate. But Edgar had a plan. This is Wobegon. I landed relatively safely. My feet touched the ground first, but I still ended up on my knees because I wasn't ready to land standing up. When the world was done distorting around me, I took a deep breath and made it to my feet. I got up as quickly as I could. 
I hadn't been briefed on where I was, and I wanted my wits about me. Edgar had only told me that I would be performing some tasks. He kept everything else secret. Edgar was the one giving instructions from the base this time. I fumbled in my bag and found the earpiece. You there, Edgar? I asked. I am. Are you okay? Edgar asked. Yeah, I'm okay. Looks like I'm in... I looked around. I was in a small town and the weather was cold. The sky was overcast and there were puddles everywhere from a recent storm. I didn't see any people outside. All of this together gave the place an air of loneliness and melancholy. I'm in a sad little town at a car rental place, I finally said. Oh, you're not being fair, Edgar said. You should at least have a look around before you trash the place, and you're the one who wants to move to a small town in the middle of nowhere, remember? Well, welcome to Rugby, North Dakota. Edgar, why am I in Rugby, North Dakota? I asked. So far, it did not appear to be the ideal retirement village. I wanted somewhere small, Edgar explained. Somewhere quiet, where no one would see us run our errands today. Rugby has everything we need and not a lot of eyeballs. Plus, there aren't that many other states where you can win the lottery anonymously. And how are we going to win the lottery? I asked. Did you go forward in time and get the numbers? You're in yesterday, Mikey, he said. If you could call yourself up, you'd find that you were on the couch with me, cuddling and watching Under the Silver Lake together. Well, maybe if we can both explain it to you at the same time, we can convince you that it's a good movie, I said. Mmm, doubt it, he said. Anyway, I need you to rent a car today. Rugby isn't exactly known for its public transportation. Well, what is it known for? I asked. It calls itself the self-proclaimed center of North America, he replied. They call themselves the self-proclaimed center? What does that mean? I asked. It means that it's not actually the center of North America. They used to think it was, he said. So that is a sad thing to be famous for, I said. You get how this town looks sad, right? Uh, I guess so. Anyway, you're going to go in and you're going to rent the Jeep Gladiator for the day, and they're going to let you pay in cash, he said. Okay, is there any reason that I need to rent a huge truck to buy a lottery ticket? I asked. I could see the truck in the parking lot. It was larger than anything that I'd ever driven, though admittedly I've driven cars for most of my life. It might be more than a lottery ticket, Edgar admitted. Might be? I shot back. Well, let's focus on one thing at a time, Mikey, Edgar said. I grumbled to myself, went inside, paid for the rental, and then came outside to the truck. It was intimidatingly large. It looked wider than the road. Edgar, I feel like I failed the necessary manhood test to drive this thing, I said. You'll be fine. The terrain can be rough around here. You'll need it, Edgar replied. Tough. I thought we were going to the gas station to buy a lottery ticket, I said. And you would be correct, that is the first goal, Edgar said. Let's get that one done before we talk about the next one. I started the truck and pulled out of the car rental parking lot. Alright, you're going to have to navigate for me, I said. I don't know where I'm going. Right, no GPS for this one. No need to give a satellite our exact location and exact point in time. We know how valuable that is, he said. You did leave your cell phone here, right? Sure did, I said. You're my only link to the world right now, Panther. So, where am I turning at on this road? You are going to drive for about five minutes, and then you will see the center of North America. Can't miss it. There's going to be an American flag, a Canadian flag, and a Mexican flag, and you're going to turn right at that intersection, he said. Well, it is a shame that there's not time to stop and look at it up close. 
You know I didn't get to do any sightseeing in Riga either, I said. I think the flags might be all there is to see, he said. After a few minutes of driving, I reached the intersection that Edgar had described. The center of North America was, frankly, underwhelming. Just some flags and a building. I looked in my rearview mirror as I turned right at the intersection. So, Edgar, tell me about this guy behind me. Is that what's next after the lottery ticket? I asked. The black car behind me had stayed with me the whole time that I had been driving. It didn't seem like a coincidence, and he didn't seem like a sightseer. Edgar took much longer to respond than I would have liked. I was readying myself to ask again when he timidly said, No? Well, fuck, Edgar. I've got trouble. I punched the steering wheel, and I just assume that this is something that I need to handle. Or you can pull over and we can figure out where you are and I can bring you back, Edgar said. In the time that it takes me to figure out where I am so that you can bring me back, this guy will have enough time to do whatever he wants to me, I said. I can't exactly bring it up on my phone, and I would rather not die in the parking lot of the fake center of North America. There's no one around, he could just shoot me and then speed off and no one would ever know, or worse, he could take me somewhere in time. Then what are you going to do, Mike? Suddenly, Edgar sounded scared. It was the first time that I had heard that tone in his voice since we established the base. He was running an operation on the ground for the first time and it had backfired. And I couldn't find it in myself to be frustrated at him for mismanaging the plan. Or for letting this propagation of information shit get in the way of me knowing what's going on when it's my life on the line. Instead, I just felt upset knowing that he was afraid. I wanted to keep him from being upset at all costs. That was my prevailing urge. Edgar, we handled something like this in Riga, I said, keeping my voice calm. We were tailed by someone, and things got tense, but we got it settled, and none of us got hurt. We did what needed to be done, and then we were able to get on with the fourth challenge. You're not the only one that went away and learned about all this stuff. I was gone for a long time, too. So, I'm gonna use what I learned, and I'm gonna handle this, and we're gonna get through it, okay? I'm sorry, Mikey, he said. I thought I had it under control. It's okay, I said. I'm used to things not being in control. While I was calming Edgar down, I was doing the things that Michael had done in Riga. I pulled off the main road, out into the country where the likelihood of anyone seeing us commit murder or time travel was lower. The black car behind me followed all of the turns that I made, including a circle around the block of the center of North America. They didn't get out and take pictures of the flags. I got my pistol out of its holster and sat it in my lap, ready for an altercation as soon as I came to a stop. The more time that had passed since Riga, the more sure I was that Michael had done the right thing. I had somehow managed to learn from him. There were a lot of people with a lot of reasons to kill Mike Walters, and they were not going to hesitate, and this guy seemed like he could be one of them. I pulled off to the side of a gravel road and parked. The black car parked behind me. I took my pistol and got out of the truck. The other man got out of his car at the same time. I immediately pointed my pistol at center mass, prepared to fire on him. Whoa, Mikey, the man said. Both of his hands were up in a sign of submission. He was wearing a black cowboy hat. Whoa, whoa, I come in peace. It was me. Fucking Michael, I snarled, exhausted. I lowered the gun. What? Oh, no, no, no. Just Mike. Uh, Michael's hat, though. I thought that since I would be in North Dakota that I would try to blend in. He smiled at me. Why the fuck are you here? I demanded. Just doing a correction, Mike said. 
Home base doesn't get it right every time, especially not in the time that you're from. Don't get me wrong, they get a lot better, but it's an art, not a science. Thank God for corrections. You're on the mission with the lottery ticket and the assassination, right? Um, <clears throat> assassination? I asked, mostly to Edgar. I could hear him start to splutter an explanation, but my focus shifted back to Mike as he spoke again. Right, one goal at a time wouldn't want to propagate, Mike said. I remember that time period. It gets better, I promise. It won't just be you taking orders from Edgar and Anne forever. But it's already exciting, right? Like everything's shiny and new and you've got that new calculator to play with. Do you have the overmic yet? I don't know what that means, I said. Oh, well, far be it from me to propagate that information too, he said. Anyway, much more importantly, we were wrong, 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 wrong about the whole lottery ticket thing. Pants on head, incorrect. Hence the correction, I'm here to stop you. Profound negative consequences if you win that thing and all that. Definitely not worth $256 million. Trying to win in a state where you can be anonymous, that was clever, but it wasn't the whole equation. In fact, I don't think it's possible to see the whole equation. So no get-rich-quick scheme, sorry. Mike shrugged his shoulders. Well, I guess if we had won the lottery, then your place in Riga would have been much nicer, I said. Yeah, it feels pretty good to be away from that shithole, even if it's just to come out here and warn you. Don't get me wrong, Riga is nice, but our base is a little bit unlivable sometimes, Mike said. Well, I'm sure that one day I will find out for myself, I said. One day. Uh, the assassination goes great, by the way. He snapped finger guns at me. No problems, no trace of us, it's the perfect crime. He looked behind me at the truck. You're gonna need that truck for the getaway, though. You're gonna have to do some, uh, let's call it experimental driving for Edgar to get you to safety. But I've said too much already, don't want to ruin the probabilities. Edgar will tell you everything that you need to know, and then you will forgive him as soon as you get back to the base and see his puppy dog eyes. Ugh, I know, I sighed. And thanks for the warning. I know that you can't tell me everything that I want to know, but could you answer one more question? Shoot, Mike said. Was Michael fucking with me? I asked. Mike took his time answering. Yeah, he finally said. So he was fucking with you, and he didn't used to talk like that all the time. Not back then when we helped you out. But then he figured out that he could get a lot of positive attention for it out in public. I don't know if you know this, but there aren't that many American cowboys in Latvia. People get a kick out of it, so he keeps doing it. And Edgar encourages it sometimes. We've created a monster, and I just hope he gets bored with it soon. At least he doesn't do it around the apartment. Very much. Well, I sort of wish that I hadn't asked, but that's not the worst case scenario, I said. I just hope that I don't ever have to consolidate with him or something. Consolidate, oh, Mike said. Uh, but I've said too much, don't worry about it. You're still figuring that whole thing out. You have many, many years ahead of you. He looked down at the ground. Well, you have an assassination to instigate, and I need to hop on the next retrocausal pocket to Riga. He tipped his hat to me. Be seeing ya. I waved goodbye to Mike and returned to the truck. Once back in the truck, I returned my attention to the earpiece. Well, Edgar, my love... Who is your wonderful boyfriend going to kill today? Surely someone from the lost year that I'm not allowed to know anything about. Edgar hesitated. There was silence on the line. This guy's done way worse than kill people, Mikey, and Mike said it himself, everything goes perfectly. 
and we need another calculator. If you had a calculator, you would have been able to get out of there when you thought that you were being tailed. This one has to stay here. We can't lose another one in the field. If we lose both of them, then our whole mission is kaput. They can't be duplicated, and we don't know how to make them. And we wouldn't even need an extra one if you hadn't blown up the other one. But this guy is bad news, Mike. I can't tell you about it right now, but I promise. That scar on my thigh, that was me getting lucky. He shouldn't be someone who has access to a calculator, and we should, and I cut him off. Edgar, I know that you learned this style of groveling from me, so please unlearn it. I'm going to do it. I trust you, and Mike made it sound like we did the right thing, and he's got five years of experience on me. Mikey, are you sure? He asked. If you want to, we can stop at the next intersection and we can pull you out of there. Fuck it, Edgar. You've already got me out here in the center of the earth or wherever, so let's just fuck up this Arbiter goon and take his calculator and get on with it. I said. I'm sorry, Mike, Edgar said. Give me the directions, I said flatly. Oh, okay, he said, startled by a harshness that was rarely ever directed at him. Edgar gave me directions for a house southwest of Rugby, between it and a neighboring town. I had unwittingly caught Edgar in a vulnerable position. He was always methodical, careful, deliberate, attentive, but he was going to have to learn that we were playing a game with a shifting rule set, and that grit and determination wouldn't necessarily get the right result every time. I hadn't even come close to uncovering what happened during the lost year. I don't know what happened to Edgar during that time, but I do know that it did not spit him out a perfect time travel warrior. It might have given him the ability to plan an assassination, but not the resolve to see it through. Edgar had been pressed up against his limits right in front of me. He knew that I had seen him struggle, and it made him self-conscious. I understood perfectly, and I understood why he didn't want me to understand. He could barely see me at all. He was seeing himself in the mirror. The drive was long and painfully boring from a visual perspective. I learned that the terrain wasn't rough because it was rocky or mountainous, but because everything was flat and muddy and soaked through. The extreme horsepower and four-wheel drive was in hopes that I didn't get stuck in the mud. Eventually it did come in handy as I reached the muddy driveway of the address that Edgar had given me. Even with the truck, it was tricky to navigate to the end of the driveway. There was no way that I could approach stealthily. I approached in the only way that I could, navigating very cautiously through the mud. I could feel the truck sink and slide every time I made any progress. Getting down the driveway was so perilous that it felt like it took longer than the rest of the whole drive combined, although it probably actually took more like ten minutes. I got as close as I could manage, parked the truck, and got out. The mud came up to the top of my shoes and threatened to suck them off of my feet as I walked. My pistol was still in my holster. I didn't want him to see it from the window and answer the door guns blazing. I made my way up to the porch and knocked on the door. Fifteen seconds later, a man answered the door. He had short black hair, clean-shaven, slight build. I didn't recognize him. I didn't remember Edgar ever describing him to me. This was a complete stranger. I didn't remember the scar that Edgar talked about. All of a sudden, everything felt wrong, but I pushed it down. The man looked at me, wordlessly. I reached for my pistol. The man reached for something that I couldn't see from the doorway. I changed tactics and tackled him to the ground. I was right to worry. I'd failed to get my pistol out of its holster, but this man had a serrated knife in his hand. At that distance, and with my lack of skill, I would have been stabbed before I could shoot. I had little trouble tackling him to the ground. 
He fell backwards, his hands going up over his head. I attempted to take the knife out of his hands, but he had a white knuckle grip on it. He slashed wildly at me, cutting into the cartilage of my right ear. I cried out in pain and saw blood hit the carpet. He attempted a more tactical slash, aiming at my throat, but I put both of my hands and all of my body weight into his arm. His other arm being freed up, he proceeded to hit me in the head and the right side of the temple four times, each close to the original slash of my right ear. I felt a sharp stabbing pain and even more blood beginning to trickle from my ear. The world was becoming cloudy. In a desperate attempt to get my pistol free from its holster, I changed tactics again, leaning back and kicking him away from me, giving me enough space to get to my pistol. This disengagement also gave him an attempt to slash at me. He leapt forward at me as I was still on the ground. I managed to get my legs up above my head to block the knife, and he cut through my pants and into my shins, spilling even more blood. As he landed on top of me, I rolled to my left side, keeping him from staying on top of me and throwing him to the ground. My pistol now being free, I pointed it at his chest and fired. It hit him at close range. He sputtered for a moment, and then was gone. Bleeding from multiple sources and having been struck in the head several times, I lay on the carpet, stunned, my ears ringing. My body was soaking in both my blood and his. I was definitely concussed again, the second time in a very short window. The house throbbed around me as I lay on the bloody carpet. There was an intense pain in my right ear, as though the knife were somehow still there, sticking out of the flesh of my ear. I reached my hand up and touched my ear. Sharp bits of metal and plastic fell from my ear and joined the bits of metal and plastic on the ground. The earpiece. The only thing connecting me to Edgar. Edgar knew almost exactly where I was, but it wasn't enough. He knew the address, but that wasn't specific enough. He wouldn't be able to call me back to base. I gracelessly got to my feet and looked for the calculator in a daze. It was sitting out at the dining room table, ever at the ready. Lucky me. I didn't know how to use it. It didn't work when Mikey tried to use it in the mission that killed him. He sat there, punching numbers helplessly into it until he died. Edgar had told him not to mess with it, that he wouldn't be able to figure it out on his own, and he was right. But I had the calculator to bring home to Edgar, I had completed his task. And I knew that I was in North Dakota, so I could make it home, it would just take a while. I stumbled outside, my uneven footsteps reminding me that I was in no state to try to make it home right now. I could try when I was in a good enough state to walk in a straight line, for instance. I was bleeding, but I wasn't losing a fatal amount of blood. It was raining. The mud was getting even deeper. I looked at the truck. Its wheels were fully submerged in mud. No amount of horsepower or four-wheel drive would free it. It was stuck. It wasn't going to move anytime soon, and the rain was making it worse. I looked around. My truck was the only vehicle there. Then how did he get here? I wondered in slow motion. The calculator. I think I said that part out loud. I looked down at the calculator in my hands. The next thing I remember, I was sitting at a kitchen chair, looking out the window at the rain, having killed someone at the dead center of North America because my boyfriend asked me to, beaten to a pulp with no way to contact him or anyone else, unable to escape, stuck in the mud. That fucker. Mike lied to me.
Lulu, I need bonus content. This is going after the after the outro. Yeah. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.